Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. For any new listeners who don't know what to expect, in each episode, I interview an expert on an emerging area of public relations. I get to the facts, but I leave out the jargon. It's a podcast about marketing, but it's in plain language. No, really, it is. (laughs) Welcome back to all of my regular listeners too. If any of you have any comments or questions, just tweet me at Stella Bales. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and on iTunes, whatever you listen on at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. Hope your summers are going well. Now, you may have seen some of the reports and news recently about a downturn in budgets in PR. You may have even experienced it. Provokes Influence 100 Research reported that public relations investment in the last 12 months has been reduced by more than a billion dollars. We know from some of our coverage book customers and from listeners of the podcast, things are a little bit tough right now. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to say that we are looking at that topic and I've just wrote about it on the resolution blog, along with some ideas and tips about how to make the most of the budgets that we do have and actually make some savings as well. So please head to resolution.coveragebook.com and look out for future podcasts on that as well. But today we're not talking about reduction in budgets. We're talking about raising money through amazing PR. So today I am joined by the Head of Regional Media Relations at Cancer Research UK, which is Martin McGowan. Martin has been with Cancer Research UK for 20 years now, but he didn't start his career there. He was actually a crime journalist at the Evening Standard. Wow. Very different career, very different demands. Martin shares this story about the moment that he decided to change careers, which is so interesting. But he also talks about how he has taken his journalism skill sets into the team and built what is now one of the most successful charity newsrooms in the UK. He talks about the creative ways that they work with journalists now and how they've adapted to the developing way that we all consume media. Martin also shares their strategy and their KPIs in how they make the most of the donations made to Cancer Research UK and also how they just raise awareness and get the education out there about prevention of cancer and also of new treatments. So ultimately, everybody can live a longer and happier life and ultimately beat cancer. Here's Martin. Martin, thank you so much for joining me on the PR Resolution podcast. My pleasure, Stella. Great to be here. Yeah, I've been really excited about this conversation because I've heard about you and I really want to get to the first question of, you've spent 20 years at Cancer Research UK, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. 20 years. Recently celebrated that anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Previous to that, you were a crime journalist at the Evening Standard. Yeah. How did you go from being a crime journalist to head of comms at Cancer Research? It's quite an interesting journey for sure. After university, I spent a decade in journalism working for local papers, amongst them the Birmingham Mail, where I was I became crime correspondent. And that's an absolutely enthralling job dealing with, let's say, the murkier side of life and covering 
all sorts of horrendous crimes, murders, rapes, armed robberies and the like. But the great thing about that job was no two days were different, no two stories were different. And you can imagine the characters that I came into contact with on a day-to-day basis, including working with the police and working in court situations. Uh, And so I took that through to my work on the Evening Standard, where I was, again, largely doing crime. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, definitely amongst the, the most exciting years of my career. But gradually over time, I started to feel that I was becoming a little bit jaded and a little bit desensitized to the kind of subject matter that I was dealing with. And it came to a head on one occasion when I got sent out to a story a very tragic story in, in Kent involving a policeman who had a mental breakdown and as a result had shot his three children, his wife, and then turned the gun on himself. Mm-hmm. And I had encountered these kind of stories before, so I felt well equipped to deal with it. But on this occasion, I was asked by my news editor to go and knock on the door of the policeman's mother to get a reaction from the family. Now, obviously, I would do that really sensitively. That's something I always prided myself on in my journalism career, dealing with these moments very sensitively. But bearing in mind, she'd lost her son, her three grandchildren and her daughter-in-law. It was always going to be a a challenging situation for her. And unsurprisingly, she very politely thanked me for my interest, but asked me to leave her in peace and to respect the family's privacy. So I phoned that into my news desk. And then my news editor at the time was a pretty forthright individual. And he said, we'll give it five minutes and go back and see if she'll talk to you. And previously in my career, I absolutely wouldn't have done that. And I would have perhaps just sat in my car for 15 minutes, then rang the news editor back. Maybe I would have told a little white lie and said I had gone back, but she didn't want to speak to me again. But on this occasion, something compelled me to go back and knock on the door. And I'll never forget the look of just disbelief on her face, given that she told me that she wanted me to respect her privacy. And it was just at that point, really, that I felt like maybe I was in danger of just becoming too desensitized. And it was important for me. I remained kind of in touch with my moral core and my ethics. So after that, I started to look for jobs in the charity sector. And you might ask why the charity sector? Well, I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to use my talents to do something good in the world to affect positive change. And also charities were a big part of my childhood growing up because my father, who was an amazing man, founded a charity for brain injured children and adults in Chester. And he pioneered a treatment program. He was a clinical psychologist, just pioneered a treatment program for those individuals. So the two things came together. And when I saw a job advert for a senior press officer, job at Cancer Research UK looking after London and the South East. It just seemed like a really great fit and the right time for me to leave journalism behind. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you did make that decision after that because you've done some amazing work at Cancer Research. So bringing it back to today, your title is Head of Regional Media Relations. Mm-hmm. What does that actually entail? So kind of like it says on the tin, my job entails dealing with the national media in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, as well as the regional media there, and then the regional media across the whole of England. So that's working with TV, radio, print and online, of course. And our job essentially is to promote all aspects of the charity's work through those channels, be that our fundraising, our science, our health awareness, our policy work, and campaigning work. 
So Cancer Research UK is, is actually the largest fundraising charity in the world. And so I very much see my role as taking that big entity and making it as compelling a cause as the hospice up the road in every single community throughout the UK. Mm-hmm. So really embedding the charity as part of the fabric of communities, which we do very successfully. And how we do that is, well, there's many components, but by far the biggest one is working with what we call media volunteers, what we might in the comms industry call case studies. So that's people who've either got cancer at the moment, survived cancer, or in the past lost a close loved one to the disease. And we invest a huge amount of time developing relationships with them and developing their stories because you take any aspect of the charity's work. And if you can tell it through the experience of a local person, then you've immediately achieved that that connectivity with local communities. But we also rely, work closely with regional and local statistics. That's a big part of our work. And we're very fortunate to have a a stats team in Cancer Research UK that can help us with that. We're very fortunate as a charity to have passionate spokespeople in virtually every town and city across the UK. So we work closely with our scientists, our nurses, right through to our shop managers. You know, we have nearly 600 shops on the high street, our event managers, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to that, we work with local celebrities And of course, we point to our events. Everybody will be familiar, I hope, with Race for Life. So we point to those events and those kind of touch points within the community throughout our communications just to sort of embed that sense of us being part of the fabric. So your department's really focused on, so obviously regional, but the media relations. Do you feel that you've been able to bring a lot of your journalism experience into that team. I always say this in recruitment interviews that our job is one of the closest jobs to journalism outside of journalism because as a charity we're very much wanting to get on the front foot and tell positive stories about our impact and our mission. We're not generally about keeping uh, stories out of the news which in other PR fields that can be a a massive component of the job. So it it is very similar and I think having come from that journalism background it's given me lots of advantages and many members of my team lots of advantages because a lot of them are ex-journalists as well. We've all got that nose for news that I don't know whether you're born with it or whether you develop it but certainly having been a journalist for all that time has sharpened my nose for news and that's a phenomenal asset to have. I think as well, like coming from journalism, the ability to translate the complex is a really core skill. And particularly when you think about cancer research, because it's the researchers that we fund, incredibly intelligent and highly educated people who do work that you and I can probably barely comprehend. But Mm. we have to, in our jobs, kind of take that work and translate it to a lay audience. And I think having that experience of doing that throughout a journalism career is really advantageous too. Writing skills might sound obvious, but as a journalist, you're able to adapt and craft your writing skills to suit different publications. And that's increasingly becoming an important skill for my team because newsrooms now at regional and at national level don't employ the same number of journalists as they used to do even 10 years ago. And so what those news desks are now looking for more than ever is what we call oven ready copy. They can just cut and paste and not have to spend too much time on. And if we can give them that, then we're doing their job for them and they're more likely to kind of engage with us on a frequent basis. So the ability of my team to do that is paramount. 
Um, the journalists, you've, you said that the, so you've got a few ex-journalists in your team. That's amazing to be able to do that because as much as many PR people like to think that they have oven-ready copy, it doesn't tend to be what journalists are always looking for, does it? <laughs> that is certainly the feedback I hear from friends of mine who still work in journalism that, yeah, sometimes PR people can kind of miss the mark when it comes to writing that compelling copy. And so that's something we work really hard on at Cancer Research UK. But also things like one of our biggest challenges, because it's such a big organisation and because we have so many different stories to tell, is managing multiple priorities all the time. I often say that our biggest competitor in terms of generating news coverage is Cancer Research UK. It's ourselves. We're sometimes in danger of tripping over ourselves because of the amount of output that we have. So obviously prioritization comes into that and it is a key aspect, but it means that we're constantly working at a very fast pace. And so for the members of my team who are ex-journalists, that experience of working to deadline is really helpful. I mean, I remember days back on the Evening Standard where I'd literally be writing the front page for that evening paper with about four people standing behind me, tapping me on the shoulder and saying, come on, hurry up. I mean, that's phenomenally stressful as an experience to go through, but it stood me in such great stead for my career here because I constantly find myself having to react to very tight deadlines. On the point that you just made around there's so many different stories for your team and other teams to tell in cancer research, I want to, I guess, take it back a step. And this might seem like a silly question because we know the good work that cancer research does. But as an organization, what is the core objective? Like, is it just to raise as much money as possible or are there other ones? What's the core objective for organizations? That's a, a really great question, Stella. And the short answer is it's not just to raise money. We're not just a fundraising charity. Really, our core objective is to beat cancer sooner. And that might sound obvious, but that's essentially it. And How we do that is through funding world-class scientific research. So that's often laboratory research, but also clinical trials, which is the process in which we take new treatments from the laboratory bench side to the hospital environment so that patients can benefit from these new and experimental medicines. And when we talk about beating cancer, it's not just one single disease. There are actually 200 different forms of cancer, which is often a statistic that surprises people. I mean, we're very familiar with some of the big cancers like lung cancer, bowel cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, etc. But there are, yeah, literally 200 types of the disease and, and all of those diseases behave in different ways and therefore need different treatment approaches. So we've got a massive task as an organization to be all 200 types of cancer. And in a way, what we're striving to achieve is to bring about a world where people can live longer, better lives, free from the fear of cancer. Mm. And cancer used to be an absolute taboo. People didn't even talk about it. They used to refer to it as the big C. And that was because your chances of dying from cancer 50 years ago were very high. But that's no longer the case. Thanks to research, thanks to the progress we've been able to make, more and more people are living with cancer now. We hope that by the mid-2030s, three in four people who are diagnosed with the disease will survive their cancer. So back that's to your question, back to, back to your question one, one, Sorry, one of that's... our core missions is to put ourselves out of a job. <laughs> because <laughs> if we can beat cancer, then there will be no need for Cancer Research UK. Yeah. And that, that's the day we actually 
bizarrely, look forward to. That's a great objective to have. And that stat you just mentioned is brilliant because I feel that that number of, which is often on uh, Stand Up to Cancer on Channel 4, this many people is likely to get cancer. I think it, it keeps going up, doesn't it? It used to be one in yes, four and now it, or that's one right, in that's five. Right. And then one now in two people. One in two, two yeah. Will, will Each year it seems to go up. There are many reasons for the statistic, but one of the main reasons is that people are living longer and cancer is predominantly a disease of older age. Although, of course, we know that far too many people get it at a younger age. So the more people are living longer, the more chances people have got of developing a disease of older age cancer. So that's one of the huge challenges that we've got, not just looking at more effective treatments for cancer, but how we can reduce the side effects of treatment so that people can live with fewer side effects and live full, happy, engaging lives with the disease. I should say as well, Stella, that one of our missions too is to reduce cancer inequalities because we know that they exist throughout the UK and throughout the world. And by that, we mean not just access to treatments being different in different parts of the country, but things like, you know, when we look at obesity, we know that poverty and financial difficulty can play a big part in fueling obesity because if people, for example, are trying to live on a limited budget and you've got those offers in the shops enticing them to buy one, get one free on food that's high in salt, sugar and fat. We understand why people would go for those offers. So that's why, for example, in that space, we're trying to do a lot of influencing and awareness work to get politicians to clamp down on those bog off offers and promotions on junk food. And so you're working on that kind of thing as well. It's not just yeah, so, relations. So absolutely. Yeah. So we work very closely with our policy and public affairs team at the charity who are engaging with not just politicians in Westminster, but in Scotland, in Wales, and Northern Ireland to bring about policy change that helps people to lead healthier lives to reduce their risk of getting cancer. Because beating cancer is as much about finding effective treatments Yes, but also preventing the disease happening in the first place. And we can all play an individual and societal role in that, as well as early diagnosis of the disease. So a lot of our work is focused around getting people to have an awareness of signs and symptoms of cancer and urging them to take action, you know, go and see their GP if something doesn't feel right for them, because there's no getting away from the fact that the earlier cancer can be caught the better chance it has of being successfully treated. So for people looking in at our work in comms at Cancer Research UK, what I would say is come and work here because it is really one of the most varied jobs and, and most diverse comms jobs that you can possibly think of, in my opinion. When, yeah. when we think about its science, its health, its lifestyle, its policy and campaigning, as well as you mentioned fundraising. Fundraising is absolutely key because none of that work would happen without the generous donations of the general public. To put that into perspective, we spent £471 million on research last year. All of that money was raised through public support. So our events, our community fundraising, our shops on the high street, our engagement with philanthropists, all of that is hugely important and does take up a lot of our comms bandwidth because without it, there would be yeah. no no chance of beating cancer yeah. sooner. You've mentioned just some of the lines of work and I feel like I could 
spend the next half an hour for each one with questions. I'm so interested in the policy changes and that prevention messaging, especially do you sort of adapt that messaging based on region, based on the people who might need to hear that particular prevention messages? Or is yeah, it sort we, of the same for the whole country? No, we very much do, Stella. Yeah, and uh, that's a great insight. Yeah. So, for instance, there are parts of the UK where smoking is more prevalent due to historic reasons. The Northwest, Glasgow, around that area, the Northeast, for a variety of, of reasons. So, I talked earlier about regional and local statistics being key to our work in terms of making us relevant to those local communities. So in those areas, highlighting the heightened risk of of lung cancer being linked to smoking and highlighting the various programs that there are available in those geographies to help people with smoking cessation, that kind of work is a big factor for us in terms of being effective because the more we can tailor our messaging to people in our communities, the the better. I mean, another good example is Again, in Scotland, there's a a type of cancer called mephacilioma, which you may have heard of before. It's actually linked to asbestos. And back in the 60s and 70s, asbestos was a really common part of the building trade. But it was also part of the shipyard industry in Glasgow and Clydebank. So people who ingested asbestos all those years ago many decades later, developed this particularly cruel type of cancer called mesophilioma, and it doesn't have a very high survival rate, unfortunately. So we fund research in Scotland looking into mesophilioma and how it can be more effectively detected at an early stage and treated. And highlighting that work across the UK is important, but particularly in the Glasgow and Clydebank area because they will see a higher prevalence of mesophilioma and our efforts to combat the disease will have that higher resonance in that area due to the kind of historic context. So yeah, we're always looking at ways to take what is, as I said earlier, the largest fundraising charity in the world and make its mission feel intimately relevant to you wherever you happen to live in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by CoverageBook, the tool that creates beautifully designed reports with credible metrics you can be proud of. Head to CoverageBook.com for your free trial. So keeping on the different stories regionally, is that where you'd bring in case studies as well? Is that the kind of way that you'd get this message out? So case studies, media volunteers support our work across all of our comms channels, so national PR, social media, even our marketing. If you watch a TV ad for Race for Life, you'll see real people telling their stories in that ad and they come through my team. So media volunteers are so important to us for a variety of reasons. One, they help us simplify the complex. If you're hearing about cancer research through Jane, who's a breast cancer survivor from Chester with her own intensely personal story to tell, then it's less of a complex story. You can engage with it. It helps us to break down those geographical barriers. So instantly local, if you're hearing the story from that individual. But it also helps in terms of people's trust in what we do. I mean, we know, for example, that social media, people don't always trust what they see on social media. It's got quite a low trust rating. Our patients and our survivors are obviously trusted to tell their own stories and to talk about the impact that cancer research has had on their journey. So through 
through voicing our work through their stories, we can gain that trust and that authenticity as well. I mean, cancer research in its kind of purest form is scientists in white lab coats in sterile environments, peering down microscopes and working on computers and data modeling and all the rest of it. You know, that's maybe not the most engaging of offerings. We work hard to make it engaging, don't get me wrong. But being able to tell the story of our research through real people's lives and real people's experience and their families and their children and all of the impact that there is gives us that connectivity. Yeah, I mean, they're memorable, aren't they? Talking of memorable, what has been like one of the most successful campaigns or memorable stories that you have worked on that's worked well to get a message across? So many memorable campaigns over the 20 years that I've worked for Cancer Research UK. And they, they differ enormously. Like a few years back, well, quite a number of years back now, we worked on the campaign to ban smoking in public places. Some of us are old enough to remember when you could go in a pub and uh, it would be filled with smoke and you'd go home and all you'd be able to smell on your clothes yeah. was somebody else's secondhand smoke. And of course, passive smoking, secondhand smoke can lead to lung cancer and other types of cancer. So that was a really important campaign to work on and one that I'm really proud to have been just a tiny part in because when you think now of the transformation that's happened and people who don't smoke don't get exposed to that secondhand smoke right. anymore. So that was really memorable. Similarly, that, that used to happen now. Like it's I know, it, it, bit, it, it, I was going to pubs when that was happening and clubs and it did. You used to absolutely reek of smoke, but yeah. I can't believe that happened, used to happen now. It's just... Uh, it seems uh, like, like a, a world away, world. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, to even begin to think about the number of lives that have been saved because of that intervention, yeah. which communications that Cancer Research UK did play a major part in bringing about that policy change. So it's really heartening to reflect on that. So those kind of campaigns are just really meaningful in terms of the impact that they can have. But more personally, campaigns that I've really enjoyed working on. One is the Cancer Research UK for Children and Young People Star Awards. And this is something that I helped to give birth to really around 20 years ago, and it's still around now. It's essentially a recognition campaign for children who bravely confront cancer, who have the misfortune to be diagnosed with uh, the disease at such a young age. And it's an award scheme that's open to any child. It's not competitive. So any child who's nominated receives the accolade and they get a, a lovely star-shaped chrome trophy, a certificate signed by a bunch of children, relevant celebrities, and a gift voucher to spend through one of our corporate partners on the high street. And every year we get about 600 children nominated for the, the award. And it's our privilege to be able to tell many of their stories throughout our communications, not just communications for the awards, but those stories can be used for our brand campaigns, our Race for Life, Stand Up to yeah. Cancer, and many of the other initiatives that we've spoken about. I can imagine the case studies now when I've seen them on TV or on social. Is there any sort of nice sort of stories or little clips that your team have been involved in that are really sort of stand out for you that's been heartwarming? Oh, gosh, yeah. So many over the years, Stella. I am blessed, truly blessed to have probably interviewed and told the stories of literally thousands of cancer survivors over 20 years. So it's difficult to pick one out. But if I had to choose one, it would be a young lad who was helping us support one of our fundraising events called Shine in Manchester. Now, Shine is a series of nighttime walking marathons. 
a mass participation event. And yeah, so he'd kind of agreed to help us promote this. Unfortunately, the young lad had been diagnosed with quite a rare form of bone cancer, which meant that he had the brittleness of bones of a 90-year-old. So walking was very difficult and it was a progressive form of cancer as well. So very sad. But he was a huge Man United fan for his sins. And I was able to, through some of my contacts, reach out and recruit Brian Robson, who older listeners might remember was um, Man United captain for many years and was also a former England captain for more than a decade. And Brian himself had been diagnosed with a form of cancer and fortunately survived. So we kind of brought about a situation where Brian surprised the young lad at the event, just kind of came up to him and said, I'd like to push your wheelchair for the first mile or so of the the walk. And I'll never forget the moment when the young lad's face lit up and he was overcome with emotion and he started crying and that spread out into the crowd actually. And lots of people around started crying. And then almost a miraculous moment happened where the lad got out of his wheelchair, held Brian's hand and started walking the first hundred feet or so. And that's all he could manage. And, And then he sat back into the wheelchair, but it was just a moment of pure magic and one that I'll never forget. And and just to be able to have played a small part in bringing about such comfort and relief and happiness for that lad, as well as to frankly generate a great story that helped us raise funds that enabled us to go on with our vital work. Oh, but I've yeah, got, there, there never, are many moments uh, like that. On the yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, I'm sat here. Sometimes when I think about stories like that, the hairs genuinely do stand up on the arms because it's just pure magic. And that's why I feel so privileged to be doing what I do and to manage such an amazing team of professionals that tirelessly engage in this really worthwhile work. Well, I can just feel the difference that a story like that would make. But I always want to ask on every episode about how you do measure success. You've talked about the main objective for cancer research, but bringing it down to your team and all of those different lines of activity and different stories you have, how do you measure the different campaigns that you have? So obviously, like all organisations, you know, we're interested in the volume of coverage and the reach and the share of voice as well. You know, we're interested in what our share of voice amongst cancer charities is because ultimately we are competing with different cancer charities for public donations. So we look at all those measures, but I think there's been a shift over the last five years or so of us really focusing in on the qualitative measures. So looking at things like penetration of key messaging, prevalence of spokespeople in our comms, the proportion of coverage that features video, the proportion of coverage that features a case study. You know, we've talked about the importance and the value of media volunteers and case studies. So we look at the proportion that features them. So yeah, more and more it's about looking at measures of quality of coverage rather than just simply the volume and the reach. I mean, the simple reality is that both are equally important. There's no point having high volumes of coverage and bombarding people with PR that doesn't really resonate or cut through or or have have that quality about it. Similarly, there's not much point in having really high quality coverage, but not much of it. So yeah. it's a real blend and a balance for us. And also, I, th- I think as a big organization, occasionally we're able to go further into the evaluation process. And we have worked with Mediacom, who's, as you'll know, a big media advertising agency to look at econometrics analysis. So I'm no expert on the 
computer back end of econometrics. But what I can tell you is that for us, it's a process through which we can look at all of our marketing channels like TV advertising, outdoor advertising, pay-per-view online, all of that stuff alongside our earned coverage, so PR. And we take a campaign like Race for Life, for example, and we feed in lots of data to this econometrics system. And what it gives us is an output of which of the channels across marketing and comms is the most effective for driving signups to an event like Race for Life. And really pleasingly, whenever we've done that work, it's told us that PR is one of the most effective ways of getting people to take action and sign up, but probably as importantly, a really cost-effective way. So it has one of the highest returns on investment when measured alongside, as I say, things like TV advertising. So for I think for all of us that work in the media relations or PR industry, that's a really heartening thing to be aware of, that our work isn't just earnest and well-crafted. It returns great bang for buck for whichever organisation we're working for. Even more important when you're working for on behalf of a charity, because being cost effective means that the budget is going where it's meant to be and it's getting the best return, which is more money for research, which is great. Uh, Absolutely, Stella. And we have to pass everything that we do through that lens of, is this a cost effective use of resource? Because ultimately, the people who are funding our work are the generous people who are running marathons for us or holding cake bake sales for us and essentially people going the extra mile in their communities to raise funds. So we have to be always mindful of that. And that doesn't mean that we don't do things that are sophisticated. We do work in a really professional way at Cancer Research UK. But at the same time, we have to always ask ourselves, is this an appropriate use of donor money? Good question to ask. Still on that line, I'm really interested to know how your team is set up and what kind of skills you have in-house. You mentioned right at the beginning that you have a few ex-journalists within the team. And then also that sort of theme of being really sure that you're being cost-effective wherever you can and having efficiencies within the way that you run the team. Really curious to know like how the team's set up now and how it was set up maybe in comparison to five years ago. So we've got about 17 people in the regional media relations team at Cancer Research UK, and they're spread out right throughout the UK, Edinburgh, Belfast, Leeds, Manchester, et cetera, et cetera. They pretty much all work from home now, whereas five years ago they were office-based. That's a big change. And we have, I think, a really sweet blend within the team of ex-journalists, people who've worked in in-house PR, people who've worked for PR agencies, and that gives us a complete kind of like mix of skills and experience. For me, I would say the sweet spot, however, of like the ultimate media relations officer in the team is someone who has worked in journalism, but then has gone on to work in-house for an organization or a couple of organizations before coming to us. Because I tend to find that those people can, first of all, hit the ground wrong in because they know how to work with journalists, but they also know how to work within a big complex organization. But They also get the more corporate sides of PR in a way that people who come straight from journalism sometimes need a bit of time to adjust to. So, for example, what that can look like is, you know, if we're working with a corporate partner, I think as journalists, we're trained to bury the mention of the corporate partner in the story. But obviously, when you're representing the organization that corporate partner is funding, you can't be doing that. They have to be really prominent. And I think those officers and managers who come from that background of having done both 
get that instinctively and don't maybe have such a kind of wrestle with their conscience and their professionality around it. So yeah, that's the kind of important component in the makeup of the team, but hugely experienced team. I think because of the variety and the breadth of work that I talked to you about, this role is pretty attractive to people and jobs as attractive as, as this often don't come up in places like Newcastle or Leeds or Edinburgh right. or Bristol. So what it means for us is that we're able to attract people who are quite advanced in their careers, who are very experienced and retain them. So yeah. remarkably, really, the average tenure that I've got in my team is about 10 years of experience, which is enormously helpful when you think about not only the external experience, but the organizational experience that we've got in terms of working within quite a complex structure of Cancer Research UK. Yeah. Um, having that experience is really helpful. So yeah, good mix of people in the team, but we also look for external perspectives too. And in terms of how the media landscape has changed over like the last five years, where it is now, have you found that the skill sets has had to change or is it mainly predominantly writing and relations still? I think this is certainly one of the most kind of transformational things that's happened to my job in the last few years, just the way that there's been a massive shift in the way that audiences are consuming news, as you'll be aware. Five years ago, there was still a huge focus on print coverage. And of course, what we've seen is that kind of navigate to online. But an important thing to stress, and I think it's often misreported in the media, is that whilst print circulations have declined, online audiences have grown exponentially. So there are now actually more eyes on the content that is produced by journalists regionally and nationally than there was 10 years ago. The challenge for those media institutions, however, is how to monetize it. But that's an entirely different story. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for us, that gravitation to online has been huge. And also how people are, are viewing that news, you know, more often now viewing it on mobile phones while moving about on the way to work or in between social appointments and stuff like that. So because of that, it's all become now about developing highly shareable content. So the goal really is to produce a piece of news content that media outlets will want to carry online on their Facebook channels that will fly around the internet and drive traffic back to their website and our website. I mean, that's the goal. And that has changed the way that we work substantially. So if I take just one example, video, Video is now a huge, huge component of our work. Probably 40% of our time is spent producing videos to accompany online stories. And we do that at Cancer Research UK using high-end Samsung phones to shoot, edit, and export in a really agile way, all from the device, producing genuinely broadcast quality coverage. So we often see our mobile phone shot coverage of uh, items of films appearing on ITV, on Channel 4, etc., uh, and on the BBC. So we know it's of broadcast quality. So as well as changing the very nature of the press officer's job, being so focused on video, it's also meant that we've got to change the way that we think about stories. And we've almost had to rewire our brain away from what's the most important part of the story to what's the most shareable part of the story. And to bring that to life for you a little bit, if we were to take a, a story that we worked on recently, it was an important announcement about improvements in bowel cancer research. So that was the most important part of the story, the improvements that we were able to communicate about 
bowel cancer outcomes for patients. But we had a case study who had undergone treatment for bowel cancer and he had been given the impression that the chemotherapy that he'd had was likely to have had an impact on his fertility. So we worked with that case study story and we got from him some user-generated content, video, home shot video footage of the moment when delightfully his wife came to him at work one day and surprised him with a positive pregnancy test, a pregnancy test that he never thought he would ever see. So having survived cancer, he's now got the amazing news that he's going to fulfill his lifelong dream of becoming a father. Wow. And that clip, that look on his face when he got that pregnancy test, that's the most shareable part of the story. So that's what we lead on with the video. And then we bring the story back to the most important part of the story, which is the advancements that have been made in, in bowel cancer research. So for my team, it, like it literally has been a rewiring of the brain. Yeah. And it's been something that they've had to adjust to and adapt to over time. But I'm proud to say that they've really made that shift. And we're pushing the envelope constantly to respond to the demands of the media. And often we're innovating ahead of the media. So an example would be not long ago, we did a 360 video in a hospital in Southampton where we were able to give viewers of this 360 video an immersive view of what it's like to be inside an operating theatre when someone is undergoing surgery for esophageal cancer. So you open this video up on your phone and you're able to tilt it around as if you're one of the doctors or nurses in the room experiencing this surgery as it's happening. And we got huge success with that video. It was carried by BBC Online, by Daily Mail and, and countless other national and regional media outlets. And it, it was seen by over 60% of the of UK adults. But it also was just great in terms of connecting with audiences on a, in a different way and getting them to kind of think about what they're fundraising leads to in terms of this hugely cutting-edge pioneering world-class research seen in a way that they hadn't seen it before. Definitely lands the message in a different way, that, doesn't it? You are going at all different angles to land those messages and you can just see how well they are working. God, I I really just keep talking to you all day, but I'm going to try and wind this up to bring you to my last question. It seems like your team has adapted so well to the changing media landscape of the last few years, like them having the phones and getting that footage out very quickly to media. Can you see any changes that are coming up over the next few years that you might be able to predict that your team might have to make? I mean, we all know that AI is the big buzz at the moment and what that might mean for comms teams in all sectors. I'm no soothsayer. I don't know exactly where that's going to go in the, in the next five years, but we're already starting to see some iterations of that. So there are some news websites now that have used AI to translate the news story that appears in print to an audio clip that people can click on and therefore engage with the news article if they're on a tube or if they're on a train by just click, popping in their headphones and clicking click. And that's meant that journalists in news outlets throughout the UK are able to provide that extra option for their readers in a way that isn't imposing too much on their time as journalists. So I think we can probably predict that there's going to be lots of ways that AI will augment and enhance the journalist's work and make their work more efficient. The question for us comms professionals is going to be, how do we adapt to that and how do we ensure the 
quality of our coverage isn't impacted by that. And also our relationships with journalists, because the more that AI creeps into journalist work, you could see a vision for the future where there isn't maybe that much necessity for comms professionals and journalists to actually have conversations to meet face-to-face or to talk over the phone. Do you feel that's changed in the last five years? Well, for us currently, that's still a big part of the job, you know, developing those meaningful relationships with journalists where we do them a favour and they do us a favour is is hugely valuable and is a massive part of our success, especially in the regions and nations. But it has changed already and we're finding it harder to get them on the phone or to connect with them in enough ways. In fact, Twitter has become a, as much a platform for sharing news as a platform for engaging with journalists. So I do think there are going to be issues moving forward in terms of continuing that relationship building with journalists, but we're just going to have to find more innovative and tech-enabled ways to do that. But I hope there will always be space for physical interactions because... There's nothing like having a great journalist contact who you've formed a close human relationship with. I don't think there's ever going to be any replacement for that. No, especially when organisations like Cancer Research are doing so many great real life stories and real life events. So, you know, you want the journalist to be there experiencing it as well. So, yeah. And we've got to find more interesting ways of enticing them to cover the stories and to get involved as well. So one thing we do sometimes is in a local community, there's an app sale going on to raise funds for Cancer Research UK. And we're trying to get the journalists to pay attention to that story and cover it. Why not invite them to come along and actually do the app sale and put a GoPro camera on them and get that footage as they descend down, (laughs) petrified. So yeah, it's always thinking outside the box of what are the different ways that we can engage journalists who are becoming increasingly time poor. And AI is only going to make that worse and only yeah. going to make our challenge harder. Oh, I look forward to seeing some of those GoPro videos then. <laughs> uh, Martin, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, you must be a busy man with a busy team. So I really appreciate your time. But oh, thank thanks, you. Stella. It's been such a privilege to speak to you. Uh, Take care. That was the PR Resolution podcast. If you want to learn more about emerging areas of PR, join the PR Resolution and head to blog.coveragebook.com. Stay in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales and make sure you subscribe to the series to get the next episode.